Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 2, Episode 12, Is the Law Sinful? Romans 7, 7 through 12. Why does God have rules for our lives if he knows that we, as fallen creatures, are not going to be able to keep all of them? Doesn't that make the rules, or called the law in Scripture, actually the problem? Or, or even to take it one step further, is God actually then unjust for requiring us to keep his ways when in fact we are too weak that sin is just too powerful for us in order to do so? That's what we're going to tackle today on Romans Untangled from chapter 7 of the book of Romans. Hey, this is Pastor Steve Treichler here of Hope Community Church. I just hope that today is a great day for you. You know, one thing that uh, uh, both, you know, when I got COVID, um, and COVID does a, it does a mess on your brain more than anything, and I was kind of filled with a lot of anxiety just about not knowing where this was going and, you know, was I going to get really sick or even maybe not make it through? And then when Carol went through her heart issues, I think what it's allowed us to do is just to stop and to say, God, I just thank you for this minute. I thank you for this hour. I thank you for this day. And that's kind of changed my perspective a little bit on thinking, worrying way too much about the future. And I know this is nothing new. Jesus says it, you know, in Matthew 6, don't, don't worry about these things. Your heavenly Father who cares about every single hair in your head, he's got this. Uh, but it's, it's been a great reminder to me in this season. You know what? I just hope that's for you too. I hope today is a day where you're just, just enjoying this day, that, that God is being very near and dear to you. And no matter what your circumstances, that the gospel is fresh for you. As you recall, this season, we're looking at one theological term each week and just kind of familiarizing ourselves with some of these seemingly difficult terms. They're not really difficult, nothing too complicated here. The terms are, are quite difficult at times, but that's how theologians make a living. You know what I mean? They make a lingo that only they can understand. And so we're just trying to bring it down so everybody understands it. We've been looking at this Latin phrase called ordo salutis, the order of salvation. In other words, the way that salvation works out in our lives. And we've looked at God's predestination, uh, the gospel call, the proclaiming of the message. Uh, then we looked at regeneration, conversion. And this week, we're going to look at justification. Justification. We've used that word quite a bit in this uh this podcast, because obviously the book of Romans is is pretty key for understanding justification. And justification is admittedly a complex subject when you really get into it. However, from just the outside, it is not that difficult to understand. It, it is quite simple, actually. Let me quote from uh, the the uh, first systematic theology I ever read. Um, it's a man by the name of Millard Erickson. He says it this way. He says, humanity has a twofold problem as a result of sin and the fall. On the one hand, there is a basic corruption of human nature. Our moral character has been polluted through sin. This, path, this aspect of the curse is nullified by regeneration. We already talked about that. That changes us from being dead to alive, uh, which, now, now back to his quote, which reverses the direction and general tendencies of human nature. The other problem remains, however, our guilt 
and liability to punishment for having failed to fulfill God's expectations. It is to this problem that justification relates. And here's his definition. Quote, justification is God's action, is God's action pronouncing sinners righteous in his sight. We have been forgiven and declared to have fulfilled all that God's law requires of us. Historically, it was this issue that preoccupied Martin Luther and led to his break from the Roman Catholic Church. It is of considerable practical significance today as well, for it deals with the question, how can I be right with God? How can I, a sinner, be accepted by a holy and righteous judge? End quote. So you can see this. Obviously, we've talked a lot about this particular issue uh, in the Book of Romans because it's 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 dealing with that issue very very much in this particular book. And one of the ways that I've taught it for years is just to make the it's simple as possible is the phrase justification really means just as if I never sinned. In other words, when God justifies us, that means that he now declares us not only not guilty, but innocent. And the way that that happens is because we're in Christ completely. And you remember we talked about that last week with the marriage analogy of Romans 7, 1 to 6. We're in Christ. We've died with him. The penalty has been paid. We're raised with him to new life. That's the real us, the inner man that Paul's going to talk about in our passage for next week. As we look at this, our, our soul and spirit is completely regenerated, okay? One of my favorite verses, and there's a lot of them. Obviously, we've looked a lot at in the book of Romans, but let me go outside Romans because uh, there's just my favorite one. is in 2 Corinthians verse uh, chapter 5, verse 21. It says, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, whenever you see that word righteousness, it's the exact same word as justice. So God made Christ, who didn't have any sin, he doesn't become a sinner because he didn't do the actions, but he becomes sin. In other words, he grabs that big old sin backpack off our back, rips it off, puts it on himself. So he becomes sin for us. So that, what the purpose was, in him, as we're in him, we might become justified in God. We might become righteous. God sees us as holy and blameless. God sees us completely as if we had never sinned. Now, that's crazy, right? That's what justification is, and that's what the book of Romans is, and it sets you free. It changes your whole relationship with God when you realize, oh my goodness, that's who I am now in Christ. That's how beautiful the gospel really is. Okay. Now on to Romans. This week, we're going to look at Romans 7, verses 7 to 12. We're continuing on. Last week, we looked at the marriage analogy in uh, Romans 7, 1 to 6. Just a beautiful and a little bit complicated uh, a complicated passage, and we spent some good time trying to untangle that. Let me read the passage this week because he's going to further on, he's going to take his, his thinking one step further now. And uh, I, I want to read it through first, okay? So he says this, Romans 7, 7 to 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would, have not have, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. 
For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, quote, you shall not covet, unquote. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring, a sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Okay? So the BQ here this week, the big, the big question that Paul's asking is, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Uh, let's just unpack that just for a second and then kind of see where his logic is going. And, and, and this is a little bit of a time to do a little bit of review, and I'm going to teach you a little trick in this section of Romans that has always helped me to understand where he's going. His question this time is, okay, wait a minute. If, if God knows that, that, that this law is actually going to not give me life, but in fact is just going to point to me more and say, sinner, 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 and I'm not going to be able to measure up to the law, well, then is the law the problem? Is God putting a law out there that no one can follow? It's, a, it's as if, you know, if you went over to Indianapolis 500 and put a speed limit 55 on the, on the track, I mean, it, 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 there's, this, there's this desire for us to, to, to break all these laws and to go as fast as we can, correct? So, so therefore, is, is, is the law actually the problem? And what he means by law here is I think he means both the Old Testament, you know, the Ten Commandments and all of the, the things that are listed in the uh, first five books of the Bible, the moral code, the things do these and don't do these and all these kind of things, right? And the, the one that's written on our hearts. If you weren't Jewish, and I'm not Jewish, and so the, the thing that I was under was what it, it calls in uh, Romans 1 verse 32, and we spent a lot of time looking at that verse. It's, it's about even though they know the righteous requirement of God, right? It's and I didn't have the Old Testament, but I knew. I knew that, that there was right and wrong, and I was breaking it, right? Is that the problem? Is it either the written code of the Old Testament or the thing that God puts on our heart, a conscience, or whatever you want to call it? Uh, and we looked at that saying goes all the way back to the knowledge of good and evil, which uh, Adam and Eve, when they ate, that's what happened to us. We got that. Is that the problem? And Paul's answer is certainly not. Now, the, the reason why this is because it's not... It's not a big leap. In fact, it's, it's the logical next step to say, wait a minute, if the law is the problem, then who gave the law? Well, well, God gave the law. So therefore, hence, ergo, as you might say, God is the problem, right? Because <laughs> God did this. And Paul will have nothing to do with that. Now, let me teach you this little trick here that will help you, I think. And usually when I do the, the retreat with folks, we spend a little bit of time, we back up here. And we back up and we just start looking at, and you can go all the way to the first chapter. We're not going to do that. I'm going to pick it up after the declaration of the what Martin Luther says is the most important paragraph in all of the Bible, Romans 3, 21 to 26, where, but now righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify, right? And he talks about Christ being revealed so that God is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I shortened that beautiful passage down way too much, but... So then after that point, 
he now is going to ask questions, all right? A lot of them. And it's it's important. I'm going to pick not every one, but I'm going to look at a lot of them just to in our time here, just to see the kind of thread that he is he's bringing up and where is this going? Why are you asking these questions? It's kind of like I've given my presentation and now there's a Q&A session. But the Q&A is all coming from one guy and this particular guy, he's anticipating the questions that will be asked, all right? But he does it in a fairly logical pattern. So look at the first question they ask is where then is boasting? Right? If it's all because of what Christ did, nothing because of what I did, it's there's no boasting, right? But then he goes into it and he even uh, highlights it a little more. It's not just on the works that I do, if I follow the code or not, but it's more than that. He said in verse 29 of chapter 3, he says, or is God the God of the Jews only? In other words, he's trying to say, it's not just a pride issue on my moral behavior, how good I'm doing, am I doing better than the next guy? But it's actually looking at, do I feel that because of where I am in life, my race, in this particular case, the Jewish people, or you could certainly use this as Americans versus any other part of the world. I think we have a little bit of ethnocentricity here in this country by far. Um, And he's saying, no, that's not it. God is the God of the Gentiles and of every nation and every race and all these kind of things, okay? So then he goes back. And he, he goes back to scripture. Remember in that, uh, that sermon where we, or the sermon, <laughs> the Romans Untangled where we, I believe it was called X equals three. Let's go back and show your work and make sure it works. So then he goes back and he asks this question in Romans chapter four. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? In other words, uh, did Abraham have something to boast about? And he doesn't. He, he didn't. Because he believed God, verse 3 of chapter 4, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? So let's just skip on down. So um, where this where this kind of argument is going, keep going in chapter 5, and then he's going to compare. We did this a few weeks back, Romans chapter 5. He's going to compare Adam to Christ in verses 12, chapter 5, verse 12 to 21. And then he brought on this thing, which of course is going to raise a whole much more questions. And here's the statement that he brought up in verses 20 and 21. He says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's going to say, hey, listen, the law was brought in and actually points to us and says, you can't, you, you need a savior. You need a savior. And just like it causes more sin to happen, and Paul's going to go into why that is this week, it also shows that God's grace is more, which raises the great question of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, now that I'm a follower of Christ and Christ has completely paid my penalty, why just go on and sin and God will, Christ will get more glory and, and God will, 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 you know, receive more and more of the credit for more and more what he forgives me, right? <laughs> and Paul just goes on to this to say, yeah, that's not how it works. You're different now. You're made alive. You're unified with Christ. You've died not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. You're different people now. You, you just, this isn't going to satisfy you. It's no longer life-giving to go on sinning. Then he goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 15, what then shall we say because we're not under law, excuse me, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? 
And now he's going to say, who actually controls you? And he's going to say, one of these things is going to control you. The law, which constantly points you to you and says sinner. But grace, who he says now, it's your master. Grace is your master, which is a strange phrase to say, because grace is something that just screams to you, you're free. You're free. You're alive. Walk with God because you can, not because you have to anymore. And he says, you're, you're actually a master to that, he says in the passage. You're slaves to righteousness. You're slaves of God. And that leads to holiness. And then he goes on to last week's big question where he says, do not know, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. In other words, you died. And you died by your union with Christ to be married to another, the risen Christ. Okay, so that's what's going on in why we now come to this question, because he's asking the question, um, well, then really was it wrong of God to bring up the law? And what's actually going on? How does sin increasing, why is that a good thing? Okay, so let's go back to the passage in Romans 7, 7 to 12. And what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I, let me give you, this is for example. Now, let me give you an example he's saying, would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, so let's just stop right there. What What's what's he doing here? He, he, he says, um, what sin actually does is it, it defies, excuse me, what the law actually does is it defies the knowledge of good and evil, and it lets me know the pathway of sin, right? And I wouldn't have even really known what coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, it's interesting. He quotes from Exodus uh, chapter 20, and that is the giving of the... Of the uh, of the Ten Commandments, right? And it's very interesting if you look at the Ten Commandments that eight of them are concerned with clearly just with behavior, right? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, on and on, right? But two of them are commandments that are given and they're really heart issues. Number one, is uh, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Martin Luther famously said, there really is no other commandments in scripture. Every other commandment falls and hangs on from this one because every other sin issue is actually creating a false God. And we saw Paul unpack that in Romans chapter one when he talked about uh, we exchange creator, the, the knowledge and the glory of creator for creation and we worship it. So that's really what's going on there. The second one, and the only one that in this whole list after that, is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And it's interesting, he doesn't say you shall not steal it, but he says you shall not covet it. In other words, you shall not sit there and just be jealous and just want it and think in your mind and fantasize in your mind how to get it, right? Now, we're going to come back to that because that's really important. 
keep on going in our passage. It says, but when this I, and we'll, that's another complicated part of this passage, we have to untangle a little bit. It says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Well, it's just an inter- interesting phrase that he uses twice here. The, the sin actually seizes something that the commandment gives. It produced in me a, every kind of coveting. And then he says, for apart from the law, sin was and is dead. Okay, so he's saying, um, what, what, uh, before I hadn't heard about coveting, and now when I hear about coveting, all I want to do is covet. Uh, I was, my old man used to tell me a story about, I was probably three years old, and back in the day when the Christmas tree lights, this is dating me, I'm sure, I'm sure, but the Christmas tree lights had actual, like, bulbs on them, okay? They were hot. And he had strung them all up, and and he looked at me at three years old, and he said, now, Stevie, now, only my old man could call me Stevie. He called me Stevie till I was 21, and then I said, Dad, can't can't do that anymore. Uh, and if I get any emails from you, Stevie at HopeCC.com does not work, okay? So there's no such thing. But anyway, he said, Stevie, do not touch those. Those are very hot. He said he turned around, took six steps, and I was already running at him with my finger extended in the air going, ooh, 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 right? Now, I had, and of course, I didn't just touch it. I just had to touch it with one finger, right? Because that's what, that's exactly what he said not to do. And I had, it was like, you just told me not to, so now I have to, right? That's sin. That's the definition of sin. It looks at a rule and it says, I need to break that. I just, I just have to. It's almost like an OCD thing we have. I must, I must, I must break it, right? Then he goes on, verse nine. He says, once I was a part once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Okay, so if you've been following along in the book of, of Romans, it seems like Paul doesn't like the law at all. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, the law is the problem. The law is the problem. We're not under law. We're free now and all this kind of thing. But that's how, now he comes back, just when you might be thinking, and that's exactly what he he's brought you to that point. But now he's saying, no, that's not the issue at all. So he's really trying to make it clear here what the problem is, because the problem is not the law. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Okay, so this phrase, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, we've already kind of went into that. It just means that sin is the problem. Sin is constantly tempting me. And I, in this passage, am very weak and very susceptible to sin. In fact, I'm deceived by it, the I, in this passage. So... The summary of this passage is simply this. The law is not sinful. God is not unjust. God is always good. And when he gave the law, it was for our good, right? And yet, it produced in us sin like crazy. And God, of course, knew that. He wasn't, he wasn't surprised by that. And of course, that's why Christ is not an afterthought. It's the whole plan. And yet, the law is holy Commandment is holy, righteous, and good. In other words, I'm fallen, and sin is a sneaky SOB. 
right? And it will creep right in there and it wants to destroy you, right? Okay. Now, the one thing that theologians in this particular passage wrestle with is who is the I he's talking about here, right? Now, the most, the, the, there's basically come down to, to um, three, th- three different possibilities. One, of course, is just reading it naturally and say, well, it's Paul, right? I mean, that's the way I normally talk when I'm talking on this podcast and I say I, I don't mean Abraham Lincoln and I don't mean somebody, I mean I, Steve, you know? And that is actually that kind of works in all these passages, right? You can kind of see that oh, I went and I was I was a child, and then I learned about coveting, and then it made me covet all these kind of different things. But the phrase here that's strange is for the apostle Paul to say, "Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died." And so people who want to defend that it's the apostle Paul would say, "Well, yeah." Uh, in a sense, you were alive, but in a sense, you were dead because you're fallen. Um, and so then when you learned of the commandment, when the commandment came and you learned of it as a young boy or whatever, then sin sprang to life and at that point you died. Now, I, I possibly, but the, there's a lot of problems with that because the Apostle Paul has made it very clear. We're dead in our transgressions from, from day one, right? So that's complicated. Uh, and so people have said, well, it's when he uses the, he, of all the Ten Commandments, very interesting that he uses the word covet, Right? And, and that's a very interesting thing because um, when you look at the, at the, at the Old Testament, the, the coveting issue, that's really the sin in the garden, right? In, in Genesis chapter 3, the servant is deceiving them, and, and there's this command. There's only one command, right? You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and ultimately, uh, Adam and Eve do succumb to that, because they ultimately look at it in the, 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 phrase, the phrase in Genesis 3, 6, it says this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and that's when the knowledge of good and evil comes. In that moment, they spiritually died, right? So this coveting concept very well could be referring to the the garden event or or you know the, the the fall of humanity when that comes in and that's we were alive but then we died right that, that could very well be that um, and then that would even kind of make sense then because sin gets this kind of personification here in this passage sin sees this opportunity afforded by the commandment. And that's very, very similar to what happens in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain and Abel, are, are they both bring sacrifices to God. God prefers Abel's sacrifice over Cain. Cain wants to kill Abel, but before he does that, God speaks to Cain and says this in or excuse me, Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What, what language is that? That is sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. What commandment? The commandment that's unwritten at this time. It's just written on his heart, which says, thou shalt not whack thy brother, right? <laughs> you just, you, he knows it's wrong. He knows it's wrong. 
even though there's no commandment about that. He knows he's not supposed to do that. Sin seizes that. It's it's a personific. It's a it's a powerful force, right? And of course, it's a it's a person because the demonic forces are actually in in in, in the ones doing the tempting. But sin here has a personification. The third option that theologians have used here is that it's actually referring to Israel. So this that Israel wouldn't really would have known what sin was if it hadn't been for the law, because it's very clear there. Those who are not Israelites had this general sense of what was right and wrong, but the people of Israel had very specific, they knew the law of God. They knew what he required to be righteous. And therefore, within them, it says that when this commandment came, then spring came to life. In other words, after the Exodus 20, when the law is given, Mount Sinai happens, that's when Israel starts to really go astray. That's another way of doing it. My my solution to that one is, uh, I believe, yes. I think in a lot of ways, it's all of these in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think he's leaning in on our experience. I think he's leaning in on the biblical theology of it being the, the Adam and Eve. And I think he is talking about Israel in some way. And so I know that's a very postmodern answer to all this, but okay. Now with that great passage, wonderful passage. What's the, what's the big idea here? It, 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 it for those of us who are freedom in Christ people, and I'm definitely one of them, those of us who hold more to a Lutheran or big big fans of Luther, we hold to an idea that we're not under law anymore. We're not obligated to do these things, right? We're not obligated to, right? And I think there can be, especially if this is new, if this is brand new to you and you're you're new to this whole, even new to Christianity, or but especially maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but you always felt like you didn't measure up and you're starting to see grace for what it is. You're starting to feel free. And what happens almost every time this happens is it it it, it says to us kind of like, well then I I don't I don't need to follow the ways of God, which is true. It's totally true. You don't need to. But what Paul here is saying is the commandments of God are holy, righteous and good. But as a believer in Jesus, as someone who's been married to him and under his death and resurrection have fully been paid and now are set free, but I'm actually set free now to view God's ways as beautiful. They're, they're poetic. They're wonderful. It's like, it's like some of the Grand Canyon and other beautiful national parks we went to this summer. Uh, you don't have to tell me, oh, you have to go enjoy that beauty now. And I think this passage starts to to bring that to the believer today too and just say, God's ways are for your good. God's ways are delightful. Following Jesus and actually obeying him, like doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. I think I said that right. Uh, is, is for your enjoyment and your pleasure and joy. So the commandment isn't the problem. It's the fact that sin sees the opportunity and ruined the beautiful thing. Uh, when end of days come and we're all in glory, uh, we're going to follow the ways of God. We're just going to do it. It's every day, 24-7. It's going to be a glorious thing. We're not even going to give it a second thought. There'll be no sin. There'll be no temptation. So it's a beautiful thing to follow the ways of God and what he's required of us. So this week, I hope and pray for you that the law in your life, God's ways, will just be seen in a way that brings life to you because you've been set free in Jesus Christ. The law is not sinful. The law is holy, righteous, and good. 
when it is used properly. Have a great week. We will see you next week on Romans Untangled.